Amen. It's good to see you all today. Well done. I don't know if I'm saying well done for. It's, uh, there we go. You're here. Um, so today I want to talk about uh, possessing the land. Because um, I think it's something that we as Christians need to do. And so today I'm going to give a very practical sermon on spiritual warfare. But the trouble is with spiritual warfare is we're charismatics. And so we tend to like talk about things that are not even written in the Bible. So I'm going to talk about spiritual warfare that's just talked about in the Bible. Okay, so this might be quite, quite refreshing for some of us. And also, I'm, I'm beginning to realize it's taken a long time for this to, to, to cotton onto this. But I'm realizing there's a lot of Christians, I I just talk and I assume everyone knows everything, but there are a lot of Christians that don't know a lot of things. So uh, in in all my talks now, I'll try and sort of thread in some basic doctrine and theology so that you can understand some things from Scripture. So you go away thinking, oh yeah, I learned something today, uh, as opposed to having a headache or something. So um, if you'd all like to turn to Isaiah chapter 60, and we'll look at verse 21. Isaiah 60 verse 21. Um, And it says, your people will be upright. They will possess the land forever. They are the shoot of my own planting, uh, the work of my hands to manifest my glory. I'll read that again. Your people will be upright. They will possess the land forever. They are the shoot of my own planting, the work of my hands to manifest my glory. Now, obviously, this scripture has a context. Otherwise, if I just preach from it, it's just a pretext. So the context of the passage is talking about Israel at the end of days. And Israel, um, when Jesus returns, all Israel will be saved, as it says it teaches in Romans 9, 10, and 11. At the fullness of the times of the Gentiles, then all Israel will be saved. Paul also says, if the hardening of the Jews was for the benefit of the Gentiles, how much more then will their coming back in be but life from the dead? So God has a plan for the Jewish people, and they will be grafted in, and they are being grafted in. Apparently, there's more Jewish people coming to know Jesus in these days than they reckon in any other time in history, apart from, obviously, uh, the initial explosion of the gospel, which is in itself, I believe, a sign of the times. It's not, it doesn't mean we're right at the end of the, de- end of the age, but it's certainly an interesting sign to pay attention to. And so that's what the context of that verse is. God has a plan for Israel, and he has many prophecies about Israel that will be fulfilled at the end of days when the Messiah returns, and he rules and reigns from Mount Zion. Okay? So, but I also passionately believe that this verse is relevant to us now as well, because obviously as Christians, we're still grafted in, and this verse has a very much uh, a poignant message for us today as well. Because the verse begins with, your people will be upright, They will possess the land forever. So now, is there some biblical theology that that can justify me saying that that scripture is relevant for Christians? Well, yes, there's loads of them, and I'm going to look at some of them now. And what we're going to do first is that we're going to look a little bit into eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times to see how that we will rule and reign over the nations uh, when Jesus returns as well. We'll come to that in a minute. However, When we are on this walk of life, we are in what I call a pilgrimage. Christianity is a pilgrimage. Now, most Protestants don't get pilgrimages. They think pilgrimages is like going on a long walk and seeing some old saint's hand soaking away in a jar or something, okay? See some relic or the finger of St. John. That's not what a pilgrimage is. A pilgrimage is not was used to be about going to some great place. So say, for example, our great cathedrals in this nation, in their days when they were built, there was nothing else like them. 
And in those, and in those, uh, those places, they were like coliseums made for the glory of God. So you'd never seen anything like this. You know, we just take it for granted. And also a pilgrimage was not just a destination, but a pilgrimage was the journey as well. It's about preparing yourself and having a heart set on God. So when you eventually come to the destination, you can marvel at its glory. And as Christians, our destination ultimately is to be with our Lord Jesus Christ. But we have a journey and that's just as important. In fact, I think God's more interested in the journey than the, than the destination. The destination is assured to you, but it's the journey where God will change you. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the journey where you'll find those gems of, God, of gold, those, those moments in your life that will define you as a person as well. Now, when we're alive, we're obviously endeavouring to be good, righteous Christians, or at least you should be, okay? And that's really important. But you will never be glorified, come into your perfection, your full glorified state until you die. Now, here's a top tip for you. If you want to be more Christ-like whilst you walk the earth now, then you need to die more now. The more you die, the more that Christ will come out, into, out of you. Until eventually when you do physically die and you go into a box, you will go to glory and you'll be glorified. And I'm just going to talk to you now for a minute what the theologians call the golden chain of salvation. All right, if you can just stay awake for a few minutes. Okay. So we're going to look at Romans 8, 29 to 30, which talks about this golden chain of salvation. And it says, for those whom he foreknew, it's talking about God, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is known as the golden chain of uh, salvation. So God foreknew you. Before you even existed, before even the universe came into being, God already knew you. Okay, He knew you. Better than you will ever know yourself. He knew you right back then. So that's first thing, the important thing. Secondly, he predestined you to salvation. Now, I know there's many arguments about predestination and foreknowledge. I like to see it this way. Calvinism, which is right over here, which is a theological position, states, um, you are predestined and there's nothing you can do about it. You will come kicking and screaming. If God's chosen you, that's it. You're done. You're in. Okay. And then there's the other extreme, which is right over here. And this is called Pelagianism. And Pelagianism states, no. It's all down to me. It's my free will. God foreknew that I was going to say yes to him, and that's how he foreknew me before time, and that's how he predestined me. The actual reality is it's somewhere not quite in the middle, but just a little bit over here, in that, yes, you do have free will, and you can choose, but actually it's still God that chose you and predestined you for salvation before the beginning of time. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay, and I'm sure we could have some really great arguments about that, but just we'll save that for another time. Okay, so he chose you and me to be conformed to his image, to the image of Christ. So that's cool, isn't it? So God is going to make you just like him one day. And you're going to be partakers of his divine nature. Now, I want you to think about that. That means that you will become one with the divine. Because Paul says in Corinthians, he talks about a man and a woman coming together and becoming one flesh. Because I'm not talking about men and women. I'm talking about the mystery of Christ and his church that at some stage in the future, we will become partakers of his divine nature and we'll become one with him. 
The room's gone quiet because you probably think I'm talking blasphemy. This is something the church has always taught throughout all the ages. Hallelujah. So then he justified you. That is, through the blood of Christ, you've been made just and declared innocent of all previous crimes committed against God and man. So all your old sins that you've done, okay, and we've all done a lot, haven't we? Amen, right? I know I did, okay? Uh, and all that has been put under the blood. However, like, in the, like what the Torah teaches us, when you come into a covenant relationship with God, you were then given the sacrificial system so that you can stay in covenant relationship with God. So when you confess your sins to coming into salvation, it's a different kind of confession when you're in the place of salvation. So now you're in the place of salvation, like the Old Testament law teaches, we still need the blood of Christ to cleanse us from our sins that we now commit today as Christians, okay? So it's a different type of offering, so to speak, but it's that will allow us to continue in that, in that, in that relationship. Because some people come up with this crazy idea like, well, if you don't confess your sins, you'll go to hell. It's like, no, that's not right. That's just not true. That's not what the scriptures teach. But it's important that we make a short account. So he's justified us, made us righteous in his blood, and then when we die, he glorifies us. Amen? All right. So that's your golden chain of salvation there. So he foreknew you, he predestined you, he conformed you, he justified you, and he will glorify you. That's literally what happens to every Christian. All right, that's good news, right? Hallelujah. However, when we die and we go to heaven, we are not going to stay there forever. Okay, that's what, when I, when I first, I'm not going to say which denomination I used to be a part of, but when I was in a denomination, we just got taught, yeah, you know Jesus, and when you die, you go to heaven, and that's it forever. Isn't that great? Okay, and that would be great, but that's not what's going to happen because we're coming back. Because one of the other primary tenets of the Christian faith is not the rapture, but the resurrection of the dead. I don't hear anyone talking about the resurrection of the dead. I am talking about rapture, but not the resurrection of the dead. But the resurrection of the dead is what the church has always taught. Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 2. I know you're thinking, what's this got to do with spiritual warfare? I'm getting there. All right. Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 2 says... Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching, elementary, as in, it's elementary, dear Watson, it's, it's, it's this kindergarten stuff, this is like, you should get this, okay? Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are the basics of Christianity. And yet I meet so many Christians that don't even know these basics. Hallelujah. It teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, that Jesus is coming back. And if you're in heaven before Jesus comes back, you'll be coming back with him. And you'll be given a new body, a resurrection body. Hallelujah. It'll come out of the ground and your spirit will come and somehow we kind of meet up and uh, we get given this new body. And then and only then... Those who are left behind and remain, then they are taken up to the sky and changed in an inkling of an eye. Okay? You would think, by the way, I hear a lot of theology from the TV these days, that it's the other way around. It's not the other way around. It's the resurrection of the dead. That's the primary doctrine of the Christian teaching in respect to end times, not the rapture. The rapture is the, is the mopping up of what's left. But the big event is the, the uh, resurrection of the dead. Revelation 
So what's the purpose of being raised from the dead? You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Amen? You're going to rule, do some ruling and do some reigning. Hallelujah. Revelation 2.26, he overcomes and he who keeps my deeds till the end. To him will I give authority over the nations. Hallelujah. All right. So that's the future dealt with. Okay. Now let's bring it to today, into the now. Isaiah 60.21, your people will be upright. They will possess the land forever. And I do believe that God wants Christians to claim the land. I mean, we've lost a lot of territory in the last 200 years, but in the last 60 years, the church has conceded over so much territory. Let's just take physically. This church, for example, um, a long time ago used to have all that housing estate just behind us. This church owned all that. There was like a big community hall and all that kind of stuff. That was all part of this. Um, and a manse, etc. But over the years, it got sold off and sold off and sold off and sold off. And I know other churches where they've sold off large parts of their property and all that's left is this little building. So territorially, in the natural, church has given up so much of her, of her land. Spiritually, we have conceded so much over the, over the last 60 years as well. And what we've done is we've allowed Trojan horses to come into our churches. And, and out of those Trojan horses have, uh, have come uh, the doctrines of liberalism um, and all sorts of things and critical race theory and various things that have dumbed down, watered down and neutered the church. So she is not an effective and effectual voice in this day and time. If anything, this is the voice of the church. Thank you. <laughs> it's very quiet out there. Now, is it biblically accurate to say that we can claim territory, that we can claim the land? Well, in Joshua 1, verses 2 to 3, uh, this is what God said to Joshua. He says, My servant Moses is dead. Therefore, the hour has come for you to cross the Jordan, and all the people shall go with you to the land which I gave to the sons of Israel. I give you all the places wherever you set your foot. Hallelujah. Now, I appreciate that Israel were given an inheritance and they had to go in and claim it. And as they went in and claimed it, every step that they took in that inheritance was given to them. But is there a New Testament aspect to this so we can make this more theologically adept to where we are? Well, Jesus says in the, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. A kingdom, the rule of a Messiah, the rule of the monarch of all the ages, of all time and space. He wants us to implement the rule and the reign of the only king of kings on the earth. It's down to us. No one else is going to do it. Hallelujah. The other day I was watching the news uh, and uh, there was this Iranian lady and she was talking about some of the stuff that's been going on in our streets in London uh, with the Palestinian marches and things and all the Muslims that had been praying outside of Downing Street. And she said, you see, I come from Iran and she said, you Westerners do not get what's going on in your nation right now. She said, you are not getting it. You just think they're just being nice and like bowing down and just having a prayer meeting. They're not. When they do this, they do it as a mark of intimidation, as a sign to intimidate you, and also as a mark and sign of taking territory. Because, you see, 
a part of the Islamic faith is that wherever they go in the world, wherever they step their foot onto that land, they claim it to be Islamic land. Okay? But we Westerners, we don't think like this because we have been taught that it's politically incorrect to think like that. And if you even speak like I'm speaking now, you're a racist. That's how we've been taught, okay? But unfortunately, it's just truth. It's just the way it is, right? Now, if those guys are praying and claiming territory, what on earth are we doing? I'll tell you what we're doing. God wants his church to start taking territory. We are supposed to be a people that are to take the land for Jesus in prayer, in our culture, in our values, and in our evangelism as well. Now, let's not forget the story of Jericho, okay, and how those walls come down. We don't have time to go in it, but you can find it in Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 16. But verse 8 of that chapter is very interesting because there's several key components here. Now, you may think that when uh, they went around the walls of Jericho and they blew their shofars, or when they were walking around, you think it was just a couple of priests and a couple of soldiers, Joshua and the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't. I was surprised when I read it the other day. The priests, they were all blowing the shofars. Then they were obviously carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the manifest presence of God. And then you had the armies of Israel. And then you had everybody else that wanted to join and tag along. Okay? It was like a huge, big event. I imagine they all had sandwiches and stuff. And they, they, you know, it was a great time. You know. But they all went around those walls uh, doing that. But they all did it together. And they did it concert, as a concerted effort. The whole people of Israel. And so the question then is, how do we bring the Ark of the Covenant into our cities to bring down those walls? Well, the answer is found in Psalm 22, verse 3. It says, you are the Holy One, O Lord, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Or as the King James puts it, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabits the praises of thy people. God inhabits the praises of his people. So when we praise and we worship the Lord, we're bringing in the manifest presence of the living God into that area, time and space. I think that's exciting. Hallelujah. That I can bring down the presence of God just by praising and worshiping him. What we did today was really important in the heavens because we are making a difference. We are making a dent in the things of darkness that are going on around us right now. There's another story, again, we don't have time to go into it, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 13 to 24. And uh, we have King Jehoshaphat, and he's been told the enemy's coming, and there's a lot of them. And, and Jehoshaphat knew there's no way they can defeat this army. So, oh, well, what do I do? I think one of these prophets come up to him and says, look, you need what we need to do, we just need to praise God, send the priests out ahead with the ark, let them do some praise and worship, and, and see what God will do for you. And that's what they did. And the huge army, the enemies of the Lord, came came marched against them. And then because the priests went out and did a bit of praise and worship, the enemy was vanquished. They all started killing each other, turning on each other. And they just re- fled in panic. And they left all of the, war, the spoils of war for days and days. It took Israel to pick up all the food and stuff that they'd left behind, all the supplies where they literally just ran off in terror. That is the power of praise and worship. Turn to Psalm 149, please. This is a great psalm. 
And it teaches us a little bit about the power of praise and worship. Because this psalm is kind of broken almost into two parts. So praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. So all those that only want hymns, it does say sing a new song. Let is, but there's nothing wrong with hymns either. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. We love the tambourine, right? Especially when it's played in time. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. <laughs> he adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy in their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Your praise and worship is a form of weaponry and warfare that can bring judgment and can bring the routing of the enemy just by singing, thank you, Jesus. You know, we can, we can literally see God manifest and see him rout the enemy. Now, I don't know if you, some of you remember, you lot are exempt, okay? So back in the 90s, all right, there was um, March for Jesus. Do you ever, anyone remember the March for Jesus? Who, who, who ever went on one? Okay, yeah, that's, that's, uh, well, where was the rest of you? What were you doing? Okay, anyway, so th that, <laughs> having babies, they had, on the March of Jesus, it was um, a Graham Kendrick thing, and they were done all over the nation, so every city and most towns, and Christians just got together at certain times of the year, we all jumped on like the back of lorries, with their permission, obviously, and uh, we just went around towns and, and cities, just on the back of these lorries, praising God, and then there were Christians marching down the pavements and following the lor lorries and stuff. And it was powerful. I mean, and we, we had several of them. And it was, it, was, it was such a powerful witness because we weren't preaching, but we were going around like the walls of Jericho. We were just declaring the power of God. And we were just declaring the goodness of God and making a difference to the heavenlies. I remember um, I bought a Graham Kendrick CD at one of his shows and I went up to him afterwards and, can you sign it, please? And... Um, <laughs> And as, as he was signing it for me, I basically said to him, you know, I really enjoyed those March for Jesuses back in the, back in the day, you know, in the 90s and stuff. He said, oh, I, really, I really enjoyed them. I really missed them as well. Because they were, they were something. We need to bring things like that back, where we march around our cities, praising and worshipping the Lord. Hallelujah. Because you see, like, as a, as a church, when we, when we do outreach on the streets, you know, one of the reasons why we use praise and worship is because it creates an atmosphere. It changes the atmosphere. And you can see it. People, once they come into earshot of the praise and worship, their demeanor changes. Things change. And we've been doing that now for a long time. And the outreaches, and I'm sure the people that come on it will tell you, that every month they just seem to be getting better and better and better and better. Because we're just creating that space where God can be manifest amongst the people. So praise and worship is a really important tool in our arsenal against the devil. Yet it's one that's ob it's sometimes overlooked as being too simple. Or how could singing and singing songs to Jesus possibly be spiritual warfare? But it's really powerful. It says in Genesis 27, what? Yes. Oh, yes, thank you. And there's outreach on Saturday coming, by the way. So, uh, yeah, so for all... <laughs> All of those that want to write, put this sermon into practice. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. I'll see you all there. 
Genesis 22:17 says, for those who are part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is all you, you can read Galatians 3 and it'll tell you that you're a part of that. In Genesis 22:17, it says that um, God will give us the gates of our enemies. Hallelujah. It means we can storm the citadel. We can storm the gates of the city and we can get it. But the problem is, is that the enemy's been storming our gates for so long. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting a bit bored of it now. And it's time to turn it around. And we could just start going out there and start praying and start praising and start worshipping. Also on Friday night, before the outreach, there's a, a prayer walk as well around town. So um, that's because you might think, I'm a bit scared about doing outreach. It's not my thing. But you can all pray. So you could come Friday if you prefer. I don't know, is it? Six o'clock, yeah, meet at the bandstand. So we need to claim the land and we need to start taking territory, worshipping and praying churches in villages, towns and cities. Because when we worship, it's more important than we could ever realise. And I remember um, several months before COVID broke out, God gave me this prophetic word. And he said, the devil is going to do something in this nation that's going to shut down every church in the UK. And I was like, oh, I don't believe that. How could such a thing be? But one of the things that I noticed at that time was since the church had stopped praising God, it was almost, how long was it? On and off for about a period of two years, wasn't it? Okay. The church stopped praising God. And everyone will agree, since that time, you have seen evil just grow and grow and grow in a way that I have never seen it and the speed that I've seen it grow in these days. Because we are not when we when we stop praising and we stop worshiping it allows the enemy just to come straight in and do his thing i think god wants us to be a gideon's army because the church is too weak now she's too impoverished but i like it when it's like that because that means right that means the fight's on it means the only the brave free, the brave few the little remnant that's going to be like yeah well i'm going to be counted i'm going to be one of gideon's army the crazy people and i'm going to be counted in this day and i want to be used by god to serve the purposes of god in my generation hallelujah you know so i want to say to you you know we our, our prayer shack is now ready it's nearly it's nearly opened now and uh and the reason why we've put a prayer shack on the farm is for one strategic reason only, is that we want that land for Jesus. And so having a prayer, a prayer presence on that land is essential. Because you see, the day that we decided, uh, and we were talking about, yeah, let's, let's go for it, let's get that building put on, on that field, was almost the, the same day or within days and weeks when the council said to us, actually, we want that land instead. All of it. We want to put where your allotment is. We want to put a great big water tower on it. And uh, we, not, not only that, but we'll all of it. We'll, we'll just purchase order it off you and that will be the end of it. And so it's like, okay, that's good. So that means we're on the right page then because obviously for that to happen, and like that, it's obviously quite clear this is God. And so therefore what we need to do is that we need to have a praying presence on that land. And we need to be praying and praying and praying so we've got angels over that land so that we've got one piece of land where we can say, this far and no further, you're not getting this land. This belongs to Jesus. Yeah. Hallelujah. Even though all the mountains and the cattle on the hill belong to him, but we just need to let people know that. So I want to end with this. There's a lot going on in the church right now. There's a lot of scary things that are going on on our streets. But we can turn these things around 
if we realize that simple praise and worship and simple corporately coming together and and prayer walking and uh, going up to the prayer shack and coming to the prayer meetings on Wednesday and Thursday, even though a lot of it's praise and worship, you need to understand that it's not just those praise and worship and then prayer. Praise and worship is really important to vanquish the darkness in our age. And the darkness is very great in our age, which means the praise and worship has to be more exuberant and more joyous and more joyful than it's ever been in any age. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.